The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. There is this idea on the one hand of this kind of mass collective participation, but on the other hand, that there's a lot of attention being given to the sort of dignity of each individual contribution. And so I think the experience of voting that is most valuable is when you really sort of have these two experiences kind of juxtaposed with each other. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. Happy Election Day for those in the United States. The midterm elections are finally here. But while the candidates receive most of the media attention, the most direct experience that Americans have with elections is through voting itself. Still, in recent years, the voting process has become yet another source of fierce partisanship and polarization. Nonetheless, my experience is that very few of us have thought deeply about the idea of voting. Instead, we rely on platitudes about increasing turnout or worries about voter security. So I wanted to get beyond the noise in order to think more deeply about voting as a political institution. I reached out to Emily Booth Chapman. She is a political theorist at Stanford University who focuses on elections and voting. Her new book, Election Day, How We Vote and What It Means for Democracy, is really different from any book I have read about voting or elections. She makes a normative case for actually voting as an important component of democracy. In this way, she is offering a response to deliberative theorists like past guest Elena Landamore, who prefer sortition to select representatives. Now, our conversation doesn't actually touch on that debate directly, but we do explore the meaning and purpose behind voting. We also consider some different reforms. You'll find her recommendations surprising whether you identify as a Republican, a Democrat, Independent, or maybe even something else. If you like this conversation, please leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The podcast is one rating short of 50 on Apple and one short of 25 on Spotify. I'd really like to see the podcast reach both of those milestones this coming week. So your help, like always, is definitely appreciated. There is also a complete transcript available at democracyparadox.com. Here is my conversation with Emily Booth Chapman. Emily Booth Chapman, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, Emily, I thought that your book, Election Day, 
how we vote and what it means for democracy is just a perfect read for this time of year. In the book, you've got a lot of great quotes, a lot of great lines. And one of them that really drew me in was where you write, the democratic value of elections depends on how citizens perceive and experience electoral moments. I thought that it got at really the heart of the idea behind the book. Can you just kind of explain how the average citizen perceives and experiences electoral moments? Sure. So the idea that I want to sort of capture with this in the book is that elections bring together a couple of ideas that are often sort of seen as being intention or separate in a democracy. One is the idea of collective agency. On the one hand, the idea that democracy is something we do with lots and lots and lots of other people, and it's only something we can do with lots of other people. And then on the other hand is this idea of individual dignity of contributions, the idea that democracy isn't just about subsuming our actions into a mob. It's something different from mob rule. Our individual contributions are discrete and important. And voting really brings these two ideas together. We have images of just sort of mass participation. If you look at headlines around elections, they often reference millions head to the polls. We see, you know, montages from election day on television coverage or videos that we watch online of just lots of different people voting in lots of different places, lines at the polling place. Sometimes you see the vote counting machines of just sort of ballots being shuffled. And that gives this idea of the mass participation. But at the same time, you have this imagery of the kind of individual private ballot box, the sense that, you know, if you go and vote in person, your name is carefully checked against the voter rolls, you're given your sort of individual ballot with the sort of privacy screen. If you vote at home, you know, you're sort of carefully filling out your ballot and making sure you've got your sort of signature on the envelope and everything to match. And so there is this idea on the one hand of this kind of mass collective participation, but on the other hand, that there's a lot of attention being given to the sort of dignity of each individual contribution. And so I think the experience of voting that is most valuable is when you really sort of have these two experiences kind of juxtaposed with each other. And so that people can sort of get a sense of how that mass collective action is really built out of these kinds of individual contributions. Let's break those apart just for this conversation. In the book, you write, we vote not only because we want to have equal decision-making power, but because we want to be collectively empowered. And you kind of just got at that idea that voting brings us together and allows us to make decisions together. Why is collective empowerment so important? Sure. Well, I think among the values that we associate with democracy, one of the ones at the top of the list is the idea of equality, that we all have sort of equal political power. I think that can kind of overshadow the idea that we don't just want equal political power, we want positive political power. So one way we could have equal political power is to all have no power, to live in an anarchy and just to have no control over our social world. And so the idea of voting is that it really creates this structure whereby we can act as equals and say, we're all going to have one vote here, but we can exercise collectively some control over what happens and have some influence over the rules that govern us. And so there is this sense that citizens 
on occasions for voting, especially elections, are sort of exercising this collective power to say, no, I don't want that person to make the rules for me, or we want this other person. Or in some cases, you know, when we're voting on ballot measures, we're sort of exercising this kind of direct influence. And that's a way of being not just equal, but sort of equal in a sense of positive empowerment. It's fascinating to think about it as taking something that is widely considered as both an individual right and an individual duty, something that is very based on each individual person, but then creating something that's a collective decision together in that process. I mean, like you said before, it interweaves the two ideas behind individualism and your individual voice, and yet that community voice and that ability of the community to make a decision. And I feel like the thing that kind of connects the two is this concept of citizenship, the idea that it's a citizen's obligation, it's a citizen's right. Can you talk a little bit about how voting shapes the way that we think of ourselves as democratic citizens? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the most important functions that voting serves in a democracy, I think, is a socialization function. And there are two sort of aspects to this. So one is the idea that citizens get socialized into this idea of ourselves as political agents. So I think it's easy to go about day to day with a kind of inertia of disengagement to say, like, I'm just doing my thing. I'm taking care of my kids. I'm going to work. And to sort of think of politics as being something that happens, you know, out there that someone else does. Voting is an occasion in which that sense is sort of interrupted. And because we have this expectation that voting will involve widespread participation, that this is kind of the normal thing for everyone to do, it provides these regular opportunities for people to say, okay, it is time for me to take responsibility for making a political decision, to take a side on these issues, to go and show up and recognize that I'm an authority in a democracy. So that's the idea of sort of people getting a sense of like, yes, I am the kind of person who can and should and does participate in politics. Politics is for me. It's not just for other people. So that changes us from being subjects, just people who, you know, obey the law and, you know, have things imposed on us to being citizens, people who have a right and opportunities to exercise influence in politics. So that's one side of the citizenship thing is this sort of sense of ourselves as political agents. But the other side is a sense of ourselves as equal agents, as someone who shares in this with other people. So we could say, who else is a political agent as dictators, right? They have a lot of control over what happens to the law and policies in their countries. But that's not what we want in a democracy. We want citizens to think of themselves first as political agents, but also as people who are really involved in trying to figure out ways to live with other people, especially with people with whom we disagree. And so voting has this other important sort of socializing function of getting us to exercise this political agency in situations where equality is really formal and concrete and clear. We go to the polls, we see that we are voting, not just so that we can change the outcome, but that we collectively can make a decision. And we know that our vote is going to be counted exactly the same as everyone else's. And we are willing to participate in a situation 
which we know we're not going to change the outcome individually. This is something that we can only do with others. So you just mentioned about the idea of political equality being a necessary part about voting. And you brought up the idea that dictators, for instance, have influence. But rather than thinking about the dictator themselves, I mean, I think it helps to be able to think about citizenship in a democracy compared to citizenship under a dictatorship. Because in theory, you could be able to write to political leaders within a country like China. You could be able to express concerns, and some people do express concerns within China. But what I got out of your book was that the process of voting itself changes the way that we think of ourselves as political agents that are capable of taking political action even outside of the elections. Like we think of ourselves as people who have more influence when we talk to political leaders. We think of ourselves as having more agency within the political process. Can you talk a little bit about how it changes the way that we think of ourselves even outside the election year? Yes. So I think there's two sides to this. So one is the sort of psychological effects if you have of building a kind of political identity for people, the sense that, okay, I have the experience of participating in politics. I have the experience of thinking about political questions and of forming political judgments. And that is sort of like the first step towards being able to form this kind of like broader political identity in which people are thinking not just about the individual questions that confront them at elections, but also sort of more broadly to think of themselves as a political person who might form judgments about politics in general. But in addition to that, I think there's also an important aspect of the political environment and the political culture, which is solicitous of people's political expression and judgments. The burden is not always on individuals to sort of overcome great barriers to political participation. Instead, there's an entire system which actively seeks out people's participation. So politicians who want to be reelected want to know what it is that citizens care about, especially prospective voters, what it is that they can do for them to help kind of win that vote. And so you have this sort of like campaign machines that are designed to sort of elicit participation and involvement in this sort of process of political deliberation. But you also have interest groups and other kind of like policy motivated organizations that spring up around the idea that, okay, you've got a group of people who are maybe motivated, attentive, excited, energized around elections. And so you have a way of kind of coordinating action at that time that you might not otherwise have. But then you also have a sort of excess of enthusiasm that people have sort of built up around election time and now needs a place to be redirected. And so you can think that these other organizations also have a role in sort of soliciting people's engagement and involvement. Uh, And so I think there's a kind of way in which the energy of elections and the civic experience that it helps to create sort of feeds into this political environment that creates lots of opportunities for citizens to get involved. You have this great turn of phrase in the book where you refer to the creative work of politics. 
and you describe elections and just the ideal of democracy being a way to give citizens real opportunities to participate in this creative work of politics. And the phrase elicits a lot of different ideas on my end. I mean, on the one hand, creative work of politics could be like actual bills, actual policies that are being devised and trying to come up with solutions that people agree with. But on the other hand, creative work of politics could be like memes on Twitter, like ways to be able to communicate things and express ideas in different ways. How do you think of like the idea of the creative work of politics? Yeah, I think it's exactly as you said, it's a pretty broad concept that encompasses lots of different activities that we undertake to affect not only the sort of structure of policies or the particular proposals that might be on the table for legislation, but also the set of values that we use to evaluate different policies, whether we are focused more on sort of liberty or security or equality, which things are sort of at the height of our attention, but also how we interpret those things. So when we talk about liberty, you know, are we thinking in a kind of libertarian sense of a lack of coercion? Are we thinking in a more sort of positive liberty sense as a opportunities for self-development. And then at a kind of more fine-grained level is the idea of coming up with sort of slogans and images that help to capture either certain problems that we see in society or certain kind of potential solutions. So I think some examples of this include things like, you know, the idea of the 99% which is a really sort of powerful image. And there's no kind of necessary way in which you might have politics split between the 1% and the 99%. And a lot of politics is sort of efforts to like figure out where is that split going to be? Is it going to be between the 75% and the 25%? Or is it sort of 50-50? But that sort of cultivation of that sort of image of the 99% and that slogan is, I think, a really good example of some of the creative work of politics. Another good example is the idea of Black Lives Matter as a particular kind of slogan and what that all includes. And I think, you know, hashtags are certainly a very good way of doing this. But there's also, I think, things that we can sometimes sort of take for granted about how we create narratives that structure political discourse and that structure the way that people sort of line up uh, in politics on different teams. So you can think about the idea of political lanes in sort of primary campaigns, the idea that you might have like your sort of mavericks versus your establishment candidates, the way that those sort of labels get established, like that is also part of the creative work of politics. And so I think, you know, I want to understand this sort of pretty broadly and make sure that we have a conception of citizenship that doesn't just assign people to this kind of spectatorship role or the idea that you're just sort of saying yes or no, but that people have ways of being drawn into that creative work in different forms. So do you think that on balance that social media then has been a positive to the way in which we interact with voting, because it definitely allows people to be engaged, allows people to participate in new ways, and allows people to become more participants within the creative work of politics. But many also look at some of the negatives that social media has also created. How do you think of that? My 
gut reaction is generally to think that while social media has a lot of benefits, I wouldn't describe it as the net positive. One of the main reasons is I think that we have a tendency to focus too much on national politics, this large scale, and less on the ways in which people might exercise creative agency in sort of more local, immediate ways. And so I think that it is true that social media allows people to get involved in ways that they may not have previously. But I don't think that that's necessarily sufficient to kind of outweigh all of the other negatives. And I don't have a great sense of, you know, how does this kind of creative work of politics compare to the sort of other kinds of creative work that it it might be replacing. And one thing that I do sort of worry about a lot is the idea of what kinds of social networks are being replaced here. And I, I don't know that it's necessarily social media that is the cause of the sort of breakdown of more kind of local, you know, social networks, wherein you might see the creative work of politics being done. But I do think that there's something that's happening concurrently where you have less sort of dense interactions at the local level and sort of in terms of immediate associations happening concurrently with social media. So when we think about voting and we think about election day, I mean, obviously one of the goals in a democratic society is going to be to select leaders. I mean, that's the most obvious one. But one of the takeaways that I get from your book, though, is that there are a lot of different goals and objectives to voting. How should we be thinking about what are the goals of an election? What are the goals of getting citizens out to vote? What are the goals when we have an election like the 2022 midterms or others? So I think of voting as having a variety of different functions or values and The way I think about it is we can focus in on what are the goals of an individual election versus what are the goals of voting as a practice and what kinds of rules and structures do we want to have for maintaining voting across time. So most of my focus is on that broader question of what would a good practice of voting look like over time. And so one of the big goals that you want is for people to be participating as equals. So you want to sort of maintain this kind of sense that there is an equal count. Prior to the election, you want to have processes of, you know, what I call agenda setting and preference formation, such that when people come to vote, there is a sense that, okay, the options on the ballot are meaningful. They represent a a sort of real political choice. We have a sense of the values that are associated with these various choices on the ballot. And so that people are kind of ready to come to this with judgments about politics that can be expressed in their vote. And that also, you know, when you count all of these votes together, there's a sort of meaningful collective decision being made here rather than just sort of a whole bunch of disparate thoughts that don't make a whole lot of sense together. And then a third thing that we really want to think of as being a value in these occasions for voting is that people do have this experience of voting as an occasion of collective empowerment, that individuals feel like they are part of a political process and that they matter as a part of that. 
but also that they feel like they're doing something with other people and that the something that they're doing is democracy. And so creating that kind of experience around elections is, I think, a really important goal of our social norms that we bring around elections and then also of election administration policy. As you describe it, and to be honest, as I read throughout your book, Election Day, it gives me the impression that you feel that voting is a very unqualified, positive, good from a normative sense. Do you think of there being any downsides, like maybe polarization that's created due to elections or anything else? Are there any downsides to the way that we do elections or just the process of voting itself? There are always going to be downsides that come along with particular policies. So anytime we're sort of coming up with a set of rules for administering elections, we're going to have to make trade-offs among different values. And so that's going to come with some downsides as a result of that. But let me maybe just start with what I take to be a general kind of risk with voting that distinguishes it maybe from other forms of participation. And this is a concern that people raise that voting creates a kind of uh, sort of consumerist or spectator type model of democracy. The idea that someone else has presented you with a menu of choices and your job is to select among that menu of choices, but not necessarily to be involved in, you know, determining what goes on the menu. So you're faced with a ballot. You say like, okay, those people are running for office and my job as a citizen is just to choose sort of among them. So if we think about voting only as a way of soliciting information about citizens' preferences and we focus too much on just sort of making sure we get that information, then I think this is a real risk with voting. And so it's essential to think about the way that voting fits into a broader system of democracy to make sure that that yes or no judgment or selecting among a kind of limited set of choices that comes with voting is coupled with other aspects of a political system that helps to draw people into other forms of participation that sort of are more creative and doesn't sort of lock people into this sense that that's the only role that they have. So that I think is the risk that's impossible to eliminate. Uh, with voting is this idea that any kind of voting you have is always going to present you with a set of options that you just sort of choose from. And so if you're not careful, then people can be socialized into a sense that that's their role as citizens. The spectator sense of voting is interesting to me because on one hand, when we think of voting as being a mechanism to be able to hold our leaders, make sure that they're accountable make sure that if they're being corrupt, if they're doing bad things, that the voters then act as a jury, if you will, that then determines that that person is not the person that should be in charge and we give power to somebody else, like a competitor, an opponent, the opposition. But voting doesn't really work as a jury. Like Voters are not sitting there trying to be impartial. It's odd because it's almost like if we were a courtroom the jury would be composed of a handful of impartial people that are deciding between the different sides. But then all the lawyers would get into the jury and the judge would be part of the jury and all of the victims would be part of the jury. Just anybody who's involved in the case at all would be able to get together and try to decide what the case was. 
so it mixes together all of these different metaphors. Like on the one hand, it's like it, you're a participant, like you are the barrister in some ways, but then in other ways, you're the jury trying to weigh between the different sides as you make your vote. It's almost allowing people to be impartial as they make a judgment based on their political leaders. It's just voting itself is such an odd way to be able to think about how we determine things and how we judge things. And the spectator model has some benefits, but at the same time, it's not quite the right metaphor in a lot of ways. Yes. So I, I agree with that. I think ideals of voters that focus too much on this sort of idea that, oh, we really want impartial voters or we want voters to not be partisan and to come at every election as a sort of blank slate and just kind of evaluate the competence of their leaders is not a great model of democracy. I mean, for one, it's just sort of highly implausible. Uh, but for another, there's a lot of value to having people form sort of long-term political identities that involve a sort of partisan loyalty. I mean, among other things, partisanship helps tie together all of the different offices in government that you need to work together. And so if everybody just evaluated each individual from an impartial perspective, it wouldn't make a lot of sense because part of what's going on in government is that actually people have to work together in certain ways. And so you need parties to help make that happen. And you need individuals to sort of identify with these sort of large chunks of this. But yeah, I mean, I think that the value of having this more contestatory, more partisan sort of atmosphere around elections is precisely that it does tie this act of voting to the stuff that happens in between. So you're not just selecting a leader and then backing off and letting it run. You know, I think of one sort of metaphor for voting is to think of it as a kind of accelerant. It's like you have politics sort of chugging along and every once in a while it needs an infusion of sort of mass participation and energy. But it's not that it's like everything stops and then you have an election and then it sort of starts again. Instead, it's this kind of like continual process. And I think that it is important for citizens to recognize that part of what we do when we vote is not just act as an impartial judge, but is to take a side, to take a stand in politics and to be part of these longer term political projects. So you were going to talk a little bit about some of the other ways that we do specific elections as well. And part of the book actually dipped into what you describe as convenience voting reforms that have happened. And it's fascinating to talk about it today on this podcast because we're publishing the episode on election day. And yet at the same time, most people had voted long before the actual election day. What are your thoughts on convenience voting especially in terms of ability to vote early, ability to vote by mail. We don't have to touch on all of the issues, but just in general, what's kind of the essence to what you think of as better reforms versus reforms that could have negative effects? Sure. So in an ideal, I think you have universal or as close to universal registration as possible. So this can look like automatic registration that's built from census rolls, for example, or children being kind of pre-registered to vote more or less as soon as they're born. At a minimum, it should include same-day registration. So the idea that people can get registered and vote on the same day so that they can decide to become voters at the time when energy and excitement 
is at its peak and there is the sort of maximum input of democracy stimulation. (laughs) So that's the first crux. I think, you know, any reform agenda should put sort of easing restrictions on registration and making registration as broad as possible, the very top of the list. The next would be an election day holiday. So the idea is not just that you reduce opportunity costs for a lot of workers, but also that you create a sense of celebration and distinctiveness around the day, a chance for people to recognize, hey, this is not just like one thing that I'm trying to fit into all the other things that I have to do today, but actually this is a moment that we mark out as citizens. So then I think if you have those two things in place, then having sort of in-person election day voting is much more possible. The barriers are somewhat lower and you have a sense that there's a communal celebration and you have a lot of people who have already been able to overcome the most difficult hurdle of voting, which is registration. And the reason why I think having lots of people vote on the same day is really valuable is because it does create this strong sensory experience of people doing it at the same time. You connect the act of voting with being in public rather than with the private individual preferences of your home. You have the experience that this is something that we all do together. Also, that it's something exciting and special. It's different from your everyday routine. And then you also are sort of connecting it with those various partisan stimuli of passing people in the street who are sort of on different sides. And so you have a sense of the broader contest that's going on and not just sort of, you know, your own kind of individual judgments. So that's what I think of as being the ideal regime is sort of very, very low barriers to voting accompanied by an experience of voting where people do it all together at the same time. I thought this was really fascinating because I thought it had parts that appealed to the left, parts that appealed to the right, and parts that upset both of them for different reasons. Because you talk about voting as being something that is expansive and that gives everybody the opportunity, bringing down the barriers to make it easy to vote. But at the same time, you really emphasize the importance of voting in person and voting together on the same day. It's an interesting combination because I'm not sure that there's any party or that there's a lot of people that necessarily recognize the benefits to both those different arguments and kind of put that together into a synthesis. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. The polarization around a lot of this stuff is maybe a more recent phenomenon than this book actually is. But I do think that it's important to sort of understand, even if reasonable people could come to the conclusion that the benefits of increased opportunities to vote that are afforded by sort of more convenient opportunities like early voting and mail-in voting, you know, reasonable people could conclude that those benefits outweigh the benefits of having this sort of in-person same-day experience. But it's still important to recognize the values that are on the other side. And so some of what I try and do in the book is to say, we don't have to think of it as a single model of how we vote. And this is the only way for the values to be realized in voting. I think it's a good model for how that can happen. But it's also important to recognize that if we do decide to stick with the model of convenience voting, where people can vote by mail or early in person, 
that we try and do it in a way that strikes the best balance. So not sort of say the only thing that there is to worry about is sort of maximizing opportunities, but also to think, okay, it's not just about lowering the barriers to voting, but actually giving people positive reasons to vote. The general you know, evidence suggests that there is some turnout boost from making voting a little bit easier, but it's not as big as you might expect. And part of the reason is that a lot of what's keeping people from voting is a sense that the political system is not actively drawing them in. And so we need to think about ways to do that. And so I think that there are ways to think about what are better versions of a convenience voting regime than others? So one possibility might be to think about a more limited time frame for voting, not necessarily an election day, but not an election two months <laughs> either. So you could think about having a week or two weeks as a limited enough time that people are going to have, you know, voting on the brain all more or less around the same time that it can be a subject of conversation, even if people aren't all necessarily doing it on the same day, but that there is this atmosphere that there's this concentrated period of time in which people are engaging in this same kind of activity. So you can think about lots of public moments that have a longer structure, like the Olympics, for example, lasts for two weeks, but it's still seen as being a more contained event that can be the subject of public attention. So that's sort of one possibility, I think. Another thing to think about is the difference between having convenience voting regimes that offer the maximum of choice versus those that choose one method for everybody to engage in and really sort of pump that as being the kind of way that we all do it. So my husband is from Oregon. And so, you know, a longstanding debate in our house is <laughs> over the value of mail-in voting. It's actually a real source of civic pride. I've discovered among Oregonians that they had universal mail-in voting before other places did. And there is the sense that everybody knows that this is how everybody votes. And it is a shared experience, even though it's different. You're not doing it in the presence of other people, but you do have a sense that other people are doing it in the same way. And so I think that there's a lot of value to being physically present with others when you vote. But if you have already moved away from a system in which people do have that sort of physical presence, thinking about ways that we can cultivate a shared experience, a sense that when we vote, we are all doing sort of more or less the same thing is, I think, really valuable. And so it may well be that the sort of second best here is actually to have universal mail-in voting rather than the sort of system like what California has right now, where it's just like, here are five different ways that you can vote. And there's no sort of clear sort of single message about how to do it. One of the things that the 2020 election really brought out for me is the possibility that the method of voting can become polarized. And this was not really a phenomenon before the 2020 election. You had actually a lot of mail-in and early voting, but you didn't have the sense that it was like all Democrats doing it or mostly Democrats. So once you have that sort of polarization of voting method, I think you have a real risk of people viewing methods of voting different from their own as less legitimate. And I think that's, you know, one reason why we might think that narratives delegitimizing the 2020 election are able to take off is precisely because people can point to this difference between sort of how they and people they know voted and how the other side voted. And there's a clear story 
to be able to latch on to there. So I think that that possibility of polarization and voting method is a good reason to think about trying to make sure that we ensure as much similarity in terms of the method of voting as possible. Yeah, one of the themes I've seen in this election has been that some of the candidates, particularly Democrats, have attacked Republicans as saying that they're trying to get rid of some of the different options for voting and using that to say that they're attacking voting rights. And there's some truth to that, but your point is is that that by itself is not necessarily a bad thing to say, hey, we've got three methods of voting instead of confusing people by having 11 different methods. But the point that I want to make sure to emphasize here is that it's not saying that it's a good thing to just limit the voting. The key behind it is we need to make it easy for people to vote at the same time. And that's really the missing piece to the puzzle that sometimes we're doing when we talk about limiting ways to be able to vote is that we're not simultaneously making it easy for people to vote through same-day registration or other options like that. One thing that's been on my mind, especially as we kind of come to a final question, is a lot of these ideas that you're talking about and ideas that really just everybody in America is talking about when we think about voting are really borrowed from other places, borrowed from other countries, maybe borrowed from different states. What is a place, whether it's in the United States or whether it's a different country, that you look at as being close to a model for you of being just a great place to be able to vote that accomplishes really the goals that you think should be set out in elections that makes a lot of sense for you? What would be the closest to the ideal place for voting for you? Yeah, so... I think this has been said before, actually, even on this podcast, but Australia is an excellent model. So the one thing that is most distinct about Australia is that they have compulsory voting. And I think that the sort of underlying idea of compulsory voting is this idea that democracy doesn't just depend on people having this kind of vague, abstract opportunity to participate But it actually is about kind of making sure that you have the voice of everyone involved in government. And when you make it mandatory, you sort of say like to citizens, look, we can't get on without you. Your voice, your contribution is so important to democracy that we think it's worth sort of compelling. Now, I think it's also important to note that the penalties are relatively mild in this regime. So the fines are quite small. And actually, it's only about one in four non-voters in Australia ends up paying a fine because there are a lot of excuses that are accepted. So what you get is a letter from the government saying, hey, you didn't vote. Why didn't you vote? And people can sort of write in and explain And then also because of just like lots of people just fall through the bureaucratic cracks. But you still, even with this sort of relatively mild set of penalties and not super strict regime, you still get around 90% participation, which is far above what we have. And the general idea is that you have this system that consistently expresses the idea that it's really important that everyone vote and that you establish a kind of default, the sense that, yes, this is what we do around here. But in addition to making it compulsory, there are all these other trappings around elections. So one, it is very easy to vote in Australia. There's a lot of effort into saying like, hey, okay, well, 
we've said that you have an obligation, so we better make it possible for you to fulfill your obligation. You know, there is a sense of public celebration. I think, you know, people like to talk about the democracy sausages. I love this idea. We have a tendency to bureaucratize elections in the United States to make it feel like you're going to the DMV. That seems like (laughs) non-ideal. So this sort of sense of public celebration. And then also, of course, the kind of regime of registration that is meant to catch as many people as possible. These are the key elements there that I think sort of our system is missing. And I think compulsory voting, provided it can be designed in a sort of healthy way, not to be overly punitive, I think that compulsory voting is sort of a great idea. But even if we didn't have that, I think understanding the spirit that underlies that electoral system of like making it easy to vote and making it fun to vote and making people feel that there's a sense that voting is the thing that you're supposed to do as a citizen. These are the kind of key elements that go into making a really good voting regime. You know, I don't think you mentioned Australia as being your ideal place in the book, but as you were talking throughout this interview, I was thinking, yeah, the ideal place really sounds like Australia. (laughs) So especially just how excited everybody is to be able to get out to vote, I think is the key. Thank you so much for joining me today, Emily. This has been a great conversation. Let me plug the book one more time, Election Day, How We Vote and What It Means for Democracy. It goes on sale next week on the 16th. It's a great read. Thank you so much, Emily, for joining me. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends because word of mouth goes a very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.